Can you hear me now? Okay, let's begin with the class. Um, Ray, I just have a question. I'm not showing that I'm recording anymore. Should I not be showing the record symbol? Okay, let's begin with our class. Shalom everyone, this is Asheri Yosefa in Jerusalem. We've moved our class ahead a couple of days this week in honor of the Festival of Shavuot, which will begin at sundown on Thursday. For those of you who will be hearing this class in its scheduled time on Thursday, Chag uh, Sameach to you all. Shavuot is one of the Shalosh Raglayim the annual pilgrimage festivals when all the men of Israel were required to come to the tabernacle and later the temple to bring festival offerings as specified in the Torah. The three pilgrimage feasts are Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Rabbi Yol Schwartz has prepared an article on Shavuot for B'nai Noach. It will be on our Shuvu website shortly under Rav Schwartz's weekly parasha link. That's www.shuvu.com. I would encourage you to check out Rav Schwartz's article on Shavuot because in it he provides guidelines for how B'nai Noach should observe the Shavuot holiday. Shavuot is the anniversary of Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. When God revealed himself to the children of Israel atop Mount Sinai on the 50th day after their liberation from Egypt, here in Israel, most Torah-observant Jews will celebrate Shavuot by staying up all night long this Thursday studying Torah at thousands of Tikkun Leil Shavuot being held throughout the country. The Midrash tells us that despite having had three days to prepare to meet God, the children of Israel overslept that morning, and Moshe had to awaken them and lead them out to the base of Mount Sinai. To rectify the mistake of our ancestors, we now stay awake all night on Shavuot, studying Torah. As the dawn arrives, thousands will make their way to the Kotel to hear the reading of Megillah Ruth and to greet the morning with Hallel and the Shachrit prayers. Today is the final class in a historical overview series. Noahide Nations and Virtual Yeshiva will continue to host our Shuvu classes for B'nai Noach during June and July, as well as the many other excellent classes that form part of Noahide Nations educational programming. I invite you to visit their website at www.noahidenations.com that's N-O-A-H-I-D-E-N-A-T-I-O-N-S dot com for articles, information, schedules, and other resources. Consider purchasing a one-year family membership for $29.95 to help Noahide Nations continue bringing you these classes by their online faculty of teachers. Belie Netter next week we will begin the next in a month-long series. June's classes will be on the theme of learning from Noah and following Avraham. At the end of this class, I will review the weekly classes for both the June and the July series. Today, God willing, we will cover the time period from Avraham to the present. We will continue with the format of a historical overview interspersed with spiritual commentary. But first, Let's review some of the key points from the previous class. 
Last week, we discussed how the Divine Presence, which once walked about Gan Eden in the cool of the day, was gradually withdrawn from the earth into the seven heavens in response to mankind's progressive sins against God. The more distant and veiled the Divine Presence, the greater the spiritual darkness that prevailed upon the earth. The events which precipitated this progressive withdrawal of God's presence were Adam's sin, Cain's murder of Abel, Enosh calling on idolatrous gods, the generation of the flood, Nimrod and the construction of the Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah's theft and sexual perversion, and finally the pièce de résistance which resulted in the Divine Presence being removed to the seventh and highest heaven was the combination of idolatry, sexual immorality, and witchcraft that prevailed in Egypt at that time, and Egypt was the ruling world empire at the time of Abraham. This withdrawal of the Divine Presence sets the stage for the beginning of our class today, and that is Abraham. In our last class, we also examined the nature of the world prior to the flood. We talked about how its constancy in terms of weather, growth, and environment had contributed to mankind's progressively increasing attitude of self-sufficiency and independence from their Creator. We discussed how the devastation of the flood had revealed a new world, one that now had four annual seasons and irregular periods of rain. Looking about upon leaving the ark, Noach and his family felt their vulnerability, and as a result, Noach became the third person in history to bring an offering to Hashem, an offering that differed from the thanksgiving offerings of Cain and Abel, in that Noach's offering was an Ola offering, a burnt offering completely consumed by fire, indicating an act of total dedication to God. I brought a quote last week from Rabbi Uziel Malevsky, wherein he stated that Noach was the progenitor of the principle that mundane acts can be transformed into mitzvot when they are performed for the sake of heaven. He established this principle by means of his Ola offering, which symbolized his intention to dedicate every facet of his existence to divine service. The constant vicissitudes of life chip away at a person's false sense of self-reliance and sharpen the focus of his spiritual perspective. God made man vulnerable precisely in order to help him renew his relationship with God. If we will internalize the lesson Noach taught to mankind, we can succeed in fulfilling the ultimate purpose of our existence. And that was taken from Nir Uziel, Parsha Noach, a Torah commentary by Rabbi Malevsky. In our last class, we also discussed how the Torah reveals to us that Noach did not enter the ark until he was forced to by the rising water level, in response to which Rashi comments, even Noach, who was the most righteous in his generation, was wanting in faith. He at once believed and did not believe that the flood would take place. We then examined how faith can exist in the presence of doubt and uncertainty if one commits oneself fully to applying the measure of belief he or she does have. Despite the fact he did not seem to actually believe God would really destroy the world, Noah committed himself to fulfilling God's command to build the ark. 
I brought an example from Rabbi Malevsky in his parasha commentary where he wrote that the approach of Judaism is one that encourages questions. Faith that is not based on reason is considered fragile and dubious. Blind faith is for fools. The Torah demands that people think, that they attain faith by means of the intellect. One is expected first to examine every aspect of one's belief in God through the lens of reason before taking the final a-logical step that is called emunah, faith. Rabbi Malevsky expounded upon this by saying that a highly intelligent person must by definition entertain doubts in his mind. Even so, he can make a 100% commitment to serve God on the basis of a 60-40 decision. Someone who is 60% convinced that God exists can commit his entire life to that element of the equation, deliberately ignoring his 40% of doubts regarding this matter. Even though he may remain unconvinced regarding certain aspects of religion, he has the ability to make an honest decision to observe the laws of Torah through choosing to act in accordance with one side of his doubt equation. This decision is called emunah. Avraham embodied this concept. He too had doubts, yet he attained an unprecedented level of righteousness. Why? Because emunah is evaluated according to the quality of one's actions, not one's thoughts. Actions must be one-sided. Thoughts may entertain a wide range of possibilities. Avraham fell on his face and laughed in disbelief when God told him that he and Sarah would have a son in their old age. God gave him a daily reminder of his moment of doubt in that his son was named Yitzhak, which literally means laughter. Nonetheless, Avraham was called a man after God's own heart. So here we have the father of monotheism, the first and quintessential convert, and the first of the patriarchs of Israel displaying the perfectly human capacity for doubt. This should be comforting to all of us, but especially when a person is going through a process of coming out of another system of religious beliefs and trying to establish oneself solidly on what the Torah reveals as the truth of their identity and obligation before God. Not only was Avraham the father of the nation of Israel, but he also became the father of many nations, Genesis 17.4, and the one of whom God said, All the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by you, Genesis 12.2. Avraham was ten generations removed from Noah. Noach lived in Mesopotamia. Avram lived in Urukazdim and later Haran. It's highly unlikely that the two ever met. The seven universal laws were known in the world, but few followed them. Avram's father, Terach, was an idol maker. Avram grew up in an environment devoid of God. Yet he allowed himself to question, to search, to examine, to use his intellect to refute and reject the religious systems that surrounded him. His quest was sincere and his desire to know God was granted. Hashem revealed himself to Avram through creation and Avram responded accordingly. As a result, his deeds began to draw the revealed divine presence, the Shekhinah, back to earth. 
This is what keeping the commandments of Hashem do. They allow us to connect with God and to draw down His presence into our lives and our world. Avraham became the founder of a revolutionary movement which called into question the basis of every existing religion in his day. It was in every way an overt, grassroots movement, with Avram boldly proclaiming his discoveries about God to anyone and everyone who would listen. As a result, he and his entire family were chased out of Urakazdim, so the Midrash tells us. Sound familiar? If your life is beginning to bear some of the trademarks of Avraham, then you are undoubtedly well on your way to learning from Noah and following Avraham, the theme of our next series of classes for the month of June. Avraham was a lonely revolutionary, and loneliness is one of the common cries we hear from B'nai Noach in their emails to our Shuvu website. But Avraham did not look back. He and Sarah converted hundreds of people from idolatry to belief in the one true God. As a result, God changed his name from Avram to Avraham, which is an acronym for Av Hamom Goyim, Father of Many Nations. Rabbi Uziel Malevsky, in his Parsha commentary on Lech Lecha, states that this name conveys the meaning that eventually Avraham would become the spiritual leader of all mankind. Rabbi Malevsky notes that according to traditional belief, this aspect of God's promise has yet to be fulfilled. In the future, Avraham's ideals will become the paramount theology in the world. Certainly something to look forward to. I feel fairly confident in saying that the present-day revival of B'nai Noach and the Seven Universal Laws is part of God's promise to Avraham coming to fulfillment. The world dimension, namely universality in religion, is always present in Tanakh. At this point, I would like to leave Avraham for a few minutes to share some rather lengthy excerpts from Rabbi Ben Sion Boxer in his book entitled Judaism and the Christian Predicament, which was published in 1966. Quoting from Rabbi Boxer, Avraham's call has as its motivation that all the families of the earth shall be blessed through him. Genesis 12.3 The prophetic writings, especially the book of Jonah, are emphatic in their inclusion of the non-Jewish world in God's concern and in the recognition that all men have the capacity to respond to God's word in deeds of penitence and in growth towards moral and spiritual perfection. Rabbi Boxer continues with a longer passage that I think warrants our attention. In it, Rabbi Boxer is quoting from the source Yalkut Shema'oni on Leviticus 18.5. Probing into all the implications of the verse, Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and mine ordinances, which if a man do, he shall live by them. Leviticus 18.5. One teacher asked, Whence may it be demonstrated that a Gentile, when he conforms to the moral law of the Torah, becomes the equal of a high priest in Israel. From the words, which if a man do, he shall live by them. The term man being universal and referring equally to Jew and Gentile. Similarly, it is said, this is the law of mankind, Hashem God. 
Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 19. It is not stated, this is the law of priests, Levites and Israelites, but the more inclusive term, the law of mankind. In similar manner too, Scripture does not say, open the gates that priests, Levites and Israelites may enter, but open the gates that a righteous goy keeping faithfulness may enter. Isaiah 26.2 Goy means a people or a nation generally, Jewish or Gentile. And again, it does not say, this is the gate of the Lord. Priests, Levites, and Israelites shall enter into it. But the righteous shall enter it. Psalm 118, verse 20, which is more universal still. Likewise, it does not say, Rejoice in the Lord, O ye priests, Levites, and Israelites. But rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous. Psalm 33, 1. And finally, it does not say, Do good, O Lord, to the priests, Levites, and Israelites, but unto the good. Psalm 125, verse 4, which clearly refers to good men among all nations. It is thus abundantly demonstrated that a Gentile, provided he adheres to the moral discipline of the Torah, is the equal of the highest ranking priest in Israel. Rabbi Boxer writes, the rabbis found biblical support for their conviction that men outside the Jewish faith might rise to high spiritual and moral attainments to win divine approval. Rabbi Boxer then goes on to ask the question, if the entire complex of belief and disciplines that constitute Judaism are commanded of us, are they all not necessary? And how could one who does not abide by them be deemed as having satisfied God's will for mankind? This is a valid question, is it not? Have you not asked yourselves at one time or another why it is that Jews have 613 Torah commandments and the nations have seven? Let's return to Rabbi Boxer for his answer. The rabbis resolved this apparent paradox by differentiating between a universal system and a particular dimension in the Jewish religious system. The universal dimension was summed up by the so-called Seven Noahide Commandments, Sanhedrin 56a. These include the practices of equity in human relations and the prohibition of blasphemy, idolatry, unchastity, bloodshed, robbery, and cruelty to animals. Judaism represents the universal religion expressed through the unique system of right and law that are native to the historic experiences of the Jewish people. For the Jewish people are seen as a holy community through which God works his purpose in history and through which men can meet the divine imperative pressing on their life. This is summed up nicely by the prophet Isaiah. Quoting from Isaiah 43 verses 6 and 7, I created you and appointed you a covenant people, a light unto nations, opening eyes deprived of light, rescuing prisoners from confinement, from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Avraham was the spark that drew divine light back into a spiritually dark and murky world. God commanded Avraham, Go away from your land, from your birthplace, and from your father's house. We find this in Genesis 12, verse 1. Couldn't God have simply said, 
leave Haran, and go where I show you? Why did he specify your land, your birthplace, and your father's house? Remember, the rabbis tell us that there are no superfluous words in Torah. This seemingly redundant repetition is actually a clue that there is something deep here to be learned. Rabbi Uziel Malevsky gives us an answer in his commentary on Parsha Lech Lecha. Your land refers to Ur Kazdim, Abraham's country of origin. Your father's house refers to his family members and circle of close friends. But wait, if Orakaz Dim was Avraham's country of origin, what then is meant by your birthplace? Rabbi, Rabbi Malevsky answers. The commentators explain that the Hebrew term for birthplace, Moldatatecha, is associated with the word Yaldus, which means childhood. It refers to one's cultural milieu and the unique set of attitudes, values, and goals one absorbs during one's childhood. Hence we see that God commanded Avraham to disassociate himself from every aspect of his former life. Does any of this sound at all familiar to you? I suspect it does. If so, you are learning from Noah and following Avraham. As we say in Hebrew, Yeshar Koach. Yeshar means straight, Koach means strength or power. It's a nice way of saying, more power to you. Avraham's commitment to Hashem and his determination to walk in his ways began to draw the Divine Presence back to earth. In Avraham's merit, the Divine Presence descended from the seventh heaven to the sixth. When his son Isaac allowed himself to be placed upon the altar, it descended from the sixth to the fifth. In the merit of Yaakov, whose name was changed to Israel, the Divine Presence descended to the level of the fourth heaven. Avraham, Isaac, and Jacob had Ruach HaKodesh. They were mighty prophets. And God granted them the foresight and the vision to see into the future of their people. The sages tell us that the patriarchs kept the seven universal laws and through their gift of prophecy saw what the Sinai revelation would bring and obeyed those laws as well, even though they had not been commanded concerning them. Their premise for this is found in God's blessing of Isaac, wherein God states, Because Abraham listened to my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Genesis chapter 26 verse 5. Now this might be called a rather exaggerated description if there were not more implied here than the seven laws. In his commentary on this verse, Rashi notes that charge refers to the Torah which had not yet been given and commandments refers to matters such as robbery and theft which are both included in the prohibitions of the seven universal laws. Now a bit further on in history, we find more evidence in Torah for the existence of the seven universal laws during the time of the patriarchs. When Joseph was 17 years old, before he was sold off into Egypt, there arose a conflict between Joseph and some of his brothers while they were tending the flocks together. 
This is referred to in Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. But the details are provided in the Talmud and the Midrashim. The conflict was between the two codes of law, the seven universal laws for all mankind and the Torah commandments for Israel that the patriarchs foresaw and practiced. Mosaic law allows Jews to eat the meat of a kosher animal that has been ritually slaughtered even if the animal still exhibits some movement in its limbs. The seven universal laws do not require ritual slaughtering, but they prohibit a man from eating an animal's meat unless every trace of movement has stopped. Joseph had gotten into an argument on this subject with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, who are referred to as sons of Leah in the passage in Genesis. His brothers felt that following the Mosaic law exempted them from the prohibition of eating meat from an animal that was still twitching. To prove their point, they slaughtered an animal and did exactly that. Joseph felt they were in the wrong and reported the matter to their father. This was the proverbial final straw. All of Joseph's brothers envied him for being their father's favorite and they resented his predisposition to having prophetic dreams about ruling over them. When the opportunity arose, his brothers sold him into slavery. Twenty-two years later, when Joseph and his brothers were reunited, and he freely forgave them for what they had done, his deed merited the Divine Presence being drawn down to the third heaven. Rashi, in his commentary on Parashavayigash, tells us that before Yaakov and his family settled in Egypt, Judah went ahead of them and established a school in Goshen for the study of the seven laws and the Torah laws that they had already been taught by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Rashi further tells us that during the period of Egyptian slavery, the tribe of Levi remained in this house of study preserving the divine laws. And so it was the divine presence descended to the second heaven, now, while they were in Egypt, Pharaoh issued a decree that all the Hebrew baby boys were to be murdered. Amram, a Levite, encouraged all the Israelite men to divorce their wives, lest more boys be born to such a fate. Miriam, Amram's daughter, contested her father's wisdom and countered that his decision was worse than Pharaoh's because his decision would result in neither boys or girls being born to Am Israel and as a result, their people would cease to be. Amram heeded his daughter's plea. When he remarried his wife, Yoheved, and their son, Moshe, was born, the Divine Presence returned to the first heaven in readiness for the deliverance of Israel from Egypt in accordance with God's promise to Avraham. God was about to call out and commission his nation of priests. He called Israel out of the world as represented by Egypt in order to prepare and equip Israel to be sent back into the world as his witnesses, which is exactly what we'll be celebrating this week with the Feast of Shavuot, the giving of the Torah and the commissioning of Israel to be a light unto the nations. So we learn that God's presence had departed from earth in Gan Eden and drew further and further from the earth in progressive stages. The deeds of the patriarchs, beginning with Avraham, merited the return of the Divine Presence, again in progressive stages, becoming most tangible when he left his heavenly abode and allowed his presence to rest over Mount Sinai, 
which we read of in Exodus 24.10. This is the giving of the Torah, which we will remember and celebrate this week. The Tanya in Likutei Amarim 52 tells us that the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, clothes itself in the supernal wisdom of Hashem. As the wisdom comes down to us in this material realm, it clothes itself in the 613 commandments of the Torah. This is why the observance of God's commandments, be they 7 or 613, is how we connect to Hashem and how we come with time to feel that sense of connection and to increase in our intellectual understanding of God and man. The Rambam states in his Mishnah Torah, Hilchot Melachim, chapter 8, law 11, that God instructed Moses on Har Sinai that Israel was to keep the 613 commandments of Torah and the righteous of the nations were to be instructed in and to keep the seven universal laws of the pre-existing covenant that had been reaffirmed by God with Noah after the flood. Rabbi Chaim Klorfein and Yaakov Rogalski, in their book The Path of the Righteous Gentile, note as follows. The Mosaic and Noahide laws were inextricably bound together. The children of Noah, the righteous Gentiles, were obligated to fulfill the seven commandments because they were given on Mount Sinai, not because they were given to Noah. And the children of Israel were commanded to teach the seven commandments to the righteous Gentiles. This was the beginning of the true universal religion in which Israel, the Jewish people, is the priest and the children of Noah, the righteous Gentiles, its faithful laymen. The Tanakh and Jewish historical records indicate that whenever the Jewish people lived in Israel, the responsibility to teach the Seven Commandments was generally observed. The Babylonian Talmud and Pesachim 87b notes that during the 410 years of the first temple and the 420 years of the second temple, Gentiles who wanted to dwell in Israel had to agree before a bait din of the Sanhedrin to keep the seven laws. This qualifies a ben or bat noach as a ger toshav. As such, they were also allowed to enter the temple and to offer sacrifices. Zechariah 14 verses 17 to 19 tells us that this will again be allowed during the Messianic era. Now we see, actually, with the development of the Provisionary Sanhedrin uh, over the last couple of years, and with their um, the actions that they're now taking to try to set up Bate Din in America, that we're beginning to see this prophecy start to unfold in our days. And please God, uh, it will come to, f- to fulfillment in the days of our own lives. On the global scale, however, until recent history, observance of the seven universal laws was more or less limited to non-Jews living in Israel. Rabbis Klorfein and Rogalski tell us Hashem's remedy for this problem in their book, The Path of the Righteous Gentile, in which they state, In the year 4800 of creation, nearly 2,000 years ago, God took a drastic step to remedy the situation. He destroyed his holy temple, the center of religious Jewish life, and exiled his people to every corner of the planet, where they remain, for the most part, to this very day. 
As the Talmud states in Sukkah 52b, the Jewish people went into exile only in order to make converts, meaning to teach the nation's faith in the one God. The intention was for the Jewish people to proclaim the faith in the God of their fathers and to bring all the peoples of the world into communion with God and Israel by teaching them the seven commandments of Noah. So we see here from this quote from the Talmud that conversion doesn't necessarily mean becoming a Jew. Conversion in its true sense is what Avraham did amongst the nations. He converted the nations to faith in the one true God, in other words, to monotheistic, ethical monotheism in Hashem. Unfortunately, teaching the seven universal laws in the nations of our exile became a life-threatening situation. These nations had their own state religions, and most of them were intent on converting Jews to their religion, not being taught by Jews. Teaching the universal laws would have amounted to religious and political insurgents, and Jews were not exactly the most favored residents in many of these nations. It was a centuries-long struggle just to survive persecution and avoid assimilation in order to keep Torah and Jewish tradition alive. However, this situation changed in 1948 with the declaration of the State of Israel and the beginning of the return of Jewish exiles from the nations of the world. Now that Jews are back in Israel, there are no excuses. It is incumbent upon us, under Torah, to teach these seven laws and to impress them upon the nations as the means by which the one true God has provided for the nations to approach Him and to live their lives in accordance with His will. Now this is a two-way learning process. I see Cornelius has joined the room. I was actually talking to Cornelius by phone a little earlier today, and I was explaining to him that it's been so long, the rabbis tell us, that it has been so long since Jews have really considered our responsibility to teach the Sheva Mitzvot to the nations, that even at the rabbinical level, there are many, many people, many rabbis, and most Jews that have to learn exactly what's entailed. What is our responsibility? What are the seven universal laws? How expansive are they? Is it just the basic seven or are they far more? Which is the position that the Beit Din for B'nai Noach on the developing Sanhedrin has taken. They've discovered as they've examined these laws and explored them that the seven are portals to many, many more. The laws of justice, mercy, compassion are all things that are accessible and applicable to a Ben or Bat Noach if they choose. But the foundation point, the beginning point, starts with a thorough understanding of the seven initial laws. That thorough understanding, at least for Rabbis Rogalski and Chlorphene, was able to fill a book of well over a hundred pages. I believe Noahide Nations on their website has uh, Rabbis uh, Chlorphene and Rogalski's book, The Path of the Righteous Gentile. I would heartily recommend it. I know that when I read it, I was already a Jew when I read that book, but let me tell you, I was astounded at just how far-reaching a purely Peshat, a purely literal understanding of the Seven Commandments is. So I would certainly recommend that to anyone who's curious about exactly what is entailed in keeping the Sheva Mitzvot.
These seven commandments are the starting point. Rabbi Yol Schwartz, the Av Beit Din for B'nai Noach on the developing Sanhedrin, in his book entitled Light Unto the Nations, writes concerning the seven laws. Their general principle is that all mankind is subject to them and that disregard of them brings a punishment carried out by a court system, whereas fulfillment of them brings both material and spiritual benefits of an appropriate kind, including a portion in the world to come. And he sources this in Sanhedrin 105a. Rabbi Schwartz explains that the duties of the Torah for the nations can be divided into two areas. The Seven Commandments, as we just mentioned, and a second area of ideals of ethical behavior and good character traits. These are the laws of justice, mercy, compassion, purity, honor, honesty. Rob Schwartz speaks of these ideals of ethical behavior and, and good character traits as being the personal, private service of the individual himself. An individual who does not fulfill these ideals cannot be punished through the courts, but God himself meets out punishment as is deemed necessary in any given instance, and the fulfillment of them also brings merit. We'll talk more about these two areas of Torah obligation for non-Jews in our upcoming class, 7 or 70, during the month of June. As I mentioned uh, in other classes, Rabbi Schwartz provides our Shuvu website with a weekly Parsha commentary written for B'nai Noach. And this afternoon I just received an article from him especially on guidelines for B'nai Noach in the keeping of Shavuot, which begins Thursday night at sundown. It should be on our website later today. It will be under Rav Schwartz's uh, weekly Parsha commentary link. So I would encourage you to, uh, to check it out because he sets down the manners of observance for Menei Noach to keep the Feast of Shavuot. Now, Rabbis Klorfin and Rogalski, in their book, The Path of the Righteous Gentile, give three reasons for the present, present growth in the observance of the seven universal laws. They say that the first reason is the spiritual deterioration of mankind has reached a stage of desperation with atheism abounding. Secondly, they say that the spirit of ecumenism that has been fostered by the media has softened world opposition to Judaism's view of the relationship between God and non-Jews. And the third reason is that it is now the appointed and prophesied time spoken of by the prophet Zechariah when ten men of all the languages of the world shall take hold of the corner of the garment of him who is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Zechariah 8, verse 23. On a personal note, Rabbi Chaim Chlorfein has to receive the credit for our Shiva website coming into being when and how it did. During a visit to his home in Sfat last November, Rabbi Chlorfein impressed upon me the urgency of getting a website up and on the internet to extend a helping hand from the perspective of Orthodox Judaism to those among the nations who are searching for truth in their relationship to God. An expert in the Third Temple, Rabbi Chlorfein told me, that the present spiritual awakening among the nations and the revival of the Nenach is all part 
of the preparation necessary for the building of the third temple. May it happen in our days. Now, I'm going to, that's the end of our class material for today. We actually started a little bit before five. I do want to review the classes coming up for June and July. Uh, next week, in particular, I'll have a guest with me, uh, Helene Finkelstein. Helene is a spiritual psychotherapist, and we're going to be talking about, uh, the class will be entitled Leaving the Fold the consequences, the things that happen when we leave one religion for another, when we change our beliefs. And we're going to be discussing uh, all sorts of uh, reactions that people have. We'll also look at examples from the Tanakh that show uh, the biblical greats, people such as Abraham, people such as Noah, and how these changes affected their lives. I know for many, uh, the decision to leave Christianity, to become a Ben or Bat Noach, or to convert, has resulted in them being ostracized from family members, from friends, from their communities. And as we saw in today's class, the Midrashim tell us that Avraham and his family were actually chased out of Ur-Kazdim. Uh, so this type of, of persecution, when you uh, go upstream against the flow, uh, goes way back in time. So in our class next week, Bezrat uh, Hashem, we will talk about these types of issues. How do we handle them? How do we handle uh, the feelings of loneliness that are such a part of this? Because all of a sudden, you're the community that you worship with, even the people at your office, when you're perhaps you don't want to work on Shabbat anymore, or your behavior changes, suddenly you're regarded as the odd, the odd man or woman out, and it can have a really a disheartening effect on people. Also, this this incredible thirst for knowledge for Torah that is so much a part of this. How do we find balance in that? How do we know? How, how do we test in that search to make certain that we're getting knowledge that is, is solid and is good? Because there's so much that is available, um, particularly through the Internet, that if you're not certain of your source, can only compound um, the confusion that you're coming out of. So it's very important to make certain that you've got a solid source. And I can assure you that virtual yeshiva and, uh, and Noahide nations and, and definitely with our own site, Shuvu, we have uh, the solid backing of, of Orthodox rabbis and others, Torah teachers, that have a tremendous love for the nations, that know our responsibility to reach out to the nations, and that are solidly grounded in the Torah. Now, are there any questions, before I start to uh, give an overview of the classes, are there any questions? Um, Azriella, Shalom, welcome back. Uh, next week, Mizrat Hashem, we will be back at the same time that we normally are, and that will be on Thursday at um, 10 a.m. EST, 5 p.m. Israel. Um, Azriella, you're in France, so I think that would probably be about 4 p.m. for you, if, if I remember correctly. But it will be back to being on Thursdays again. Any other questions at all? Okay, doesn't seem like there's any questions. If you've got some... Uh, 
Okay, Cornelius, maybe if you could just type in in the space. Um, we've got the mic controlled because we're recording the class. Uh, so just type your question into uh, the space between the upper screen and the lower screen. And I'll read your question back and we can answer it. Okay, Cornelius is putting his question up on the screen. Well, can it, we're waiting for Cornelius' question to come up. Um, I re remind you to uh, take the time, if you haven't, to visit our Shuvu website at www.shuvu.com. Each week we have more informative articles uh, for spiritual seekers in B'nai Noach that have been written by myself, by rabbis, Torah teachers here in Israel that are up on the site. We've got uh, two, three new interesting articles this week. Uh, that there's one that will be on this week by Rabbi Baron, who is actually uh, one of the people involved with the Sanhedrin, who has written an article uh, talking about the ten plagues and relating them to current world events and how it all ties into Shavuot. So I think you'll find that really interesting. And as well, make certain you check the Noahide Nations website at www.noahidenations.com. You can check out their web store and their new membership program. I will also tell you, um, supporting the organizations that are now coming forward to offer teaching resources and other support for B'nai Noach is very important. And it is uh, very much needed. In almost every case, I can assure you that these organizations are functioning on volunteer labor and next to no financial resources. It is our passionate commitment to Torah and to God's revealed plan for Israel and the nations of the world that keeps us developing programs, resources, and websites to help B'nai Noach and the spiritually perplexed find community and direction. Now I'll review the classes and then we'll see if we can get some more questions here. Uh, I mentioned next Thursday's class on leaving the fold, handling the consequences of leaving one's religion, and I'll try to have that class with an open mic, see if we can set that up. Uh, we'll have Helene Finkelstein with us as well. And to give you a bit of background on Helene, Helene made Aliyah to Israel two years ago from Toronto, Canada, where she formerly had her uh, counseling practice. Helene is a balachuva. Uh, she is able to relate to the many issues a person faces when they're confronted with error and discrepancies in their religious beliefs. And she knows what it's like to come back to Torah. And as such, she really has an empathy and an understanding and, and knows how to deal with these things. And so she is very good at helping people um, deal with the many complex issues that we face when we're leaving one religion and coming into another. Uh, again, as, as Riella asked, uh, the classes will run weekly on Thursdays at 10 a.m. EST, 5 p.m. in Israel. During June, our theme is Learning from Noah and Following Avraham. The first class will be on Leaving the Fold, the Consequences of Changing One's Religion. The second class will be on Knowing God. What do we mean when we say God is one? What do we, how are we supposed to know God through creation? The Torah tells us that all of creation, the world is filled with the glory of Hashem. And if you think about it, 
Abraham grew up in a world devoid of God. He discerned that Hashem existed purely by creation. He looked at the skies, he looked at creation, he looked around him, and he came to an unwavering belief that there was one God in a world in which there were many, many gods. And so we're going to talk about how do we do that? How can we appreciate that? And I know Rabbi Nachman of Breslov has many wonderful writings on the importance of ourselves getting out and going out into nature and taking the time to really open our eyes and look around and see, and see that Hashem exists. And this also, the rabbis tells us, helps to build our love for Hashem. And we'll talk about what is our obligation what is the obligation of a ben or bat noach in knowing God? Then we'll talk in the following class on returning to God. What is Bechira? We were given Bechira. We were given free will. What does it mean? How are we to use it? This is actually something that is one of the reasons why we merited receiving the Torah. The angels don't have free will. They can't make a choice to keep Torah or not keep Torah. Only man can make that choice. And that puts us in the unique position of being a vehicle for Hashem. The Torah is not just commandments. The Torah is a mission from God if we are willing to accept it. And we can only fulfill that mission if we've got the choice to choose good over evil. The very fact that we can choose to do the good elevates it. We each have a spark of Hashem in us. He breathed our nefesh within us. That's a spark of Him in us. And through having the choice to, to elevate that, to keep the commandments, then we become Hashem's messengers in the world. And that is truly what is meant by the fact that we are created in the image of Hashem. So we'll talk about what does free will mean. We'll talk about tshuva. We'll talk about the fact that repentance, as understood through the Torah, is really at least a five-stage process. And it is very, very practical. It is physical as well as spiritual. It's not just saying you're sorry. It involves restitution. It involves doing a complete 180 and not going back to the sin before. In fact, it's interesting because there's actually a type of sin wherein it, it was particularly prevalent at the time of the generation of the flood. The generation of the flood, one of their big sins was theft. But in the Hebrew, we understand there's three types of theft. One of them is called Hamas. And Hamas actually means that what they would do would they would take something from someone, uh, forcibly, but pay them for it. And they would pay them for it, uh, most likely less than it was worth. But then the thief would justify in their mind, well, I'm, I'm, I haven't sinned. I haven't sinned. I paid them. I took it, yes, but I paid them for it. They're not out anything. And because they did that, the rabbis tell us it's impossible to do repentance for that because we don't think we've sinned. And so we'll talk about these types of things and 
what's all involved in coming to the place where we can, where we understand we have sinned, and how do we do tshuva? And in that class as well, we'll talk about hashkaha pratis, which is Hebrew for divine providence. How does God interact in our life? If we believe that he is and that he fills all things, then there is no such thing as coincidence. In Hebrew, there's an expression called lomikre. It means no coincidence. But if we turn the letters around just a little bit, what we get is rak mi Hashem, which means only from Hashem. So we'll talk about that. And in our final class for June, we will talk about 7 or 70. How many universal Torah laws are there? Or how many Torah laws do the Sheva Mitzvot actually uh, make accessible to us? And how should we observe them? We'll talk about their origins in the Torah and in the Talmudic and other sources. We'll talk about the Sheva Mitzvot as portals to many more. And we'll talk about obedience as an attitude. How do we develop that? How do we develop an attitude of obedience and submission? And we'll talk about the elevation of mankind, that through these seven universal laws, any man can be considered as righteous as the high priest. And that's quite a statement. In July, God willing, we will talk about obstacles to spiritual clarity. We will talk in our first class, Bezrat Hashem, on presumed identities and resisting the scepter. Now this might be a controversial class. Um, we're going to talk about identity theft. Are you guilty? Uh, because there's such a hunger for Torah right now, in recent years there has been a great deal of... Uh, how shall I put it? Many people who are not Jews are taking on Jewish traditions and acting like Jews, in many cases dressing like Jews. And this has been done with the best of intentions simply because people so wanted to try to live according to Torah and they look to the Jews as the example for that. But what they haven't realized is that it really, in many times, is an offense to Jews and that God has, has established two parallel paths in Torah for people to come to him. He established the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, as a, as a nation of priests and the nations are the faithful laity as we heard in today's class from Rabbi Chlorphine. We each have a role, we each have things to do. We don't have to be identical twins. We can be neighbors and walk together as friends and brothers without being uh, copycats of one another. So we're going to talk about how much is too much, what is good, what is going too far. We're going to talk about um, the fact that the Torah really is not in the heaven. This was a teaching of Moshe Rabbeinu. It's in our heart. It's in our mouth to do it is what Moshe said. It's in our heart and in our mouth to do it. So we'll discuss that principle. And we'll also talk about who holds the scepter for Judah. This will be again probably a bit controversial because in recent the recent decade there have been teachings 
that Judah no longer holds the scepter, that the authority to interpret and translate the Torah no longer rests with Judah, but that it passed uh, to God. Um, the Messianic groups teach that it passed to, to God at the time of, of Jesus. We're going to discover in the Tanakh that the scriptures are clear both in Torah, in the, the writings, the Ketuvim, and in the Nevaim, the prophets, that Judah holds the scepter right up to and into the Messianic era. And certainly we know from uh, the scriptures that Mishiach ben David is of the tribe of Judah, so the scepter is not going very far. And we'll talk about what does that mean. And we'll talk in our second class in July on spiritual pride and spiritual mixtures. That'll probably be another rather controversial class. Um, We'll talk about the lingering legacies that we have from our past, attitudes that affect our learning. Um, I'll give a little bit of an antidote here. When I first came to Israel, actually it was the third time I was in Israel, But the first time I came to Israel knowing that I was going to convert, I came to Israel for a couple of months beforehand just to arrange everything, and a friend took me to meet a gentleman who was a Kohen. And I went in, and at that point I was, you know, really, I knew what I knew in a way. And I proceeded to tell this Kohen my little story all about what was going on in the nations and about the lost tribes and all sorts of things. Well, he listened to me very politely. But when I finished, he told me in no uncertain terms just how obvious and evident was my arrogance and my pride and what an offense it was to him. And the friend who had taken me to see him was appalled but I knew, I just, I felt within me, I had to listen to this. That God wanted me to listen to this because I didn't realize that I sounded that way. I didn't realize that my words would be received that way by a Jew. And it gave me a lot to think about. I sat on a, a step in Mirpesed in the Judean desert for a week or so just thinking, um, God, what do you want of me? And so we're going to talk about the fact that sometimes we can exude attitudes that affect our learning and also our attitudes that we really don't want other people to to receive from us. We're going to talk about Rabbi Nachman's teaching wherein he says that if we think we really know God, it's when we're furthest away. And so we'll we'll learn from Rabbi Nachman's teachings what that means. And we'll talk about uh, something I like to call something old, something new, something borrowed, not. By this I mean we're going to explore how the Tanakh makes it clear that we are not to mix Torah worship with the worship traditions of other religions. It was something that the Northern Kingdom of Israel liked to do. They like to mix the the traditional worship, Torah-based worship uh, that they had grown up with, with the religions uh, that they were taking on from the countries, the nations around them. And we'll see how that was uh, condemned and forbidden. And we'll talk about resisting authority. 
a human condition with spiritual consequences. That will be probably our last class in July. And we'll discuss how we limit our capacity for revelation when we resist authority. We'll discuss how Moshe Rabbeinu, who was called the most humble man on earth, uh, the Hebrew word is anav, which is different than our English understanding of humility. It's a special word, and so we'll we'll take uh, a look at what that means. It's uh, it's a wonderful word that's best illustrated with the example of of a vessel, of a glass, and uh, how we fill that glass. And then we'll talk again a Rabbi Nachman teaching that before every spiritual ascent there is always a descent. How do we prepare ourselves for those valleys before the mountains? And God willing, we will finish our series of classes in July talking about how do we merge the internal and external aspects of our spiritual development to achieve spiritual triumph. Okay. That is our class today. Cornelius, you have questions on how to live a daily life as a Noahide in prayer, etc. Okay. That, I think we should probably... Um, that's a good point. And if, Cornelius, I think what I will do is incorporate those into the classes uh, that are coming up because we've, we've filled our time slot here right now. It's And actually, I will tell you, um, there are a number... Um, okay, I see we can do an open mic here. Um, we will do that, uh, but I'm afraid that I have someone arriving shortly, so I'm not going to be able to do it today, unfortunately. Cornelius, what I will do is incorporate those into uh, a class, because those are that, the question, how do you live life daily as a Noahide in prayer, etc., is a good one. Uh, in fact, there are a number of rabbis, uh, that right now are working on a sitter for B'nai Noach. And actually, you know, you can actually use a, a regular Jewish sitter. Um, there's just a few changes that need to be made. Most B'nai Noach tend to, to daven a lot of Tehillim. But I do know that right now there are a number of efforts underway and we are working with a number of people to try to coordinate the publication of a sitter for B'nai Noach. Certainly you can pray spontaneously, but you can pray using a sitter if you want. And uh, I mean, obviously in the lines that say, you know, personalize it that, that, you know, I am Israel or part of Israel, um, those ones need to be changed a little bit. But you can also pray with the attitude that you're thanking God, and that's how we approach the feasts. As a non-Jew, one approaches the feast of uh, thanking God for these acts, these these events that he that he brought forth in the life of the nation of Israel on behalf of the nations. Because every single one of the feasts that are mentioned in the Torah that Israel is commanded to keep, they're commanded to keep not only to fulfill the requirement to Hashem through the Torah but also because these feasts all have uh, a lesson for the nations, particularly Sukkot. So I apologize that I can't continue longer today. Thank you for all being in the room. I really appreciate the, uh, the number of people in the room today. And uh, what we will do is uh, plan an open mic 
for next week and the class discussing handling the consequences of, un of leaving one's religion. And that way we can get exchanges going between uh, you and Helene and myself. So please, God, may you uh, all be able to join us next week. Uh, as <laughs> wonderful. Thank you, Azriella and Cornelius. Uh, Greg, it's wonderful to see you back in the room. And Chag Shavuot Sameach to you all. And we will talk to you next week, God willing. Shalom, everyone.